But Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 4 and 5. And again, I'm not going to say a whole lot about the context. Um, but Paul is basically arguing through this whole book that Jesus is enough. Um, that, that the law never saved anybody, never could save anybody. That we didn't get the Spirit because we kept the law. We got the Spirit in us. We were born again because we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gist of the whole letter to the Galatian church. Um, don't go back to that legalism of the law. Don't go back to the bondage of the law. What you have in Christ is enough. Um, and then if you continue to walk in him and walk according to the spirit that he put in you, um, you're going to be all right. You're going to make it. And um, um, that, that's all that's required of us. And so that's the context of the whole book. Um, but they're getting, uh, chapter 4, uh, the whole book is doctrinal, but chapter 4 uh, just takes a deep dive into some theological uh, concepts that um, I think are worth us taking a little bit of time in. But look at verse 4, Galatians chapter 4. We read these two verses last week. We're going to read them again next week unless the Lord um, says different. I may add, I'm going to tag a couple of verses to it next week. But Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now we're going to pick up on that last phrase, Lord willing, next week. But up until you get to that last statement that we might receive the adoption of sons, we're going to talk about that today. Last week we focused just on that first sentence in that um, passage, um, when the fullness of time was come. When God says it's time, um, it's time. Nothing is by chance. Everything is by God's perfect timing. He exists outside of time. In fact, you can say that God created time, space, and matter. Um, he is the energy, the force, the, the creative um, entity behind space, time, and matter. He lives outside of it, however. Um, he doesn't have a beginning, and he won't have an end. And you can't comprehend that. Not, not one person in this room can wrap their mind around that. Our minds don't think like that. Um, I'm thankful that we have a God that's above our ability to fully comprehend. Um, he's bigger than we are. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's, my grandson can ask you some really tough questions about that. And I shared some of them with you last week. What was God doing before he made us? I don't know. He's always been, what was he doing before he made us? And the reality is he could have created a thousand or a million worlds just like the one we're living in. I don't know what he was doing. He didn't fill us in on that, but he filled us in on what he's doing here and now through his word. And that's what ought to concern us the most. But you take a look around this planet, and, and it's very obvious that the complexity of this creation, the complexities of our bodies, um, we had it, there was a designer behind all this. And I believe the scripture reveals that designer. Um, the God of the Bible is the creator of the cosmos, of everything that we see, of all space, of all time, and all matter. Um, when Jesus came in the advent, which is what this passage of scripture is about, when in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. So this is the coming uh, of the son of God, the advent. That's what see, the Christmas season is called, the advent season. It not only looks at his um, first coming and what he did there, but it also looks ahead to the time when the Bible says um, he will come again. But but. Um, and I know that there are people today that are trying to deny this, but God literally split our calendar in two um, with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole planet looks at that day as something significant that happened, and it changes our time. We look at everything before Christ as um, B.C., and everything after that is A.D. And um, you, you got to keep in mind who he was, where he came from, a little small town 
um, called Nazareth, born in a smaller town called Bethlehem, um, and never traveled very far outside of that circle, um, had no notoriety, didn't even come onto the ministry scene till he was 30 years old. His ministry only lasted three and a half years, um, but the impact that he's made on the world is, um, in it, I mean, you can't, you can't comprehend the impact that he's made. Um, in the fullness of time, God moved and sent forth his son. Um, I'm not going to go back and preach the message last week, but why? when the Bible says the fullness of time, it was a perfect time in history um, and as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. Uh, culturally, people spoke to, pretty much spoke the same language, which was common Greek. Um, there was a, it was a, a time when religious groups were beginning to get along with one another. The Jews and the Romans were working together um, and governing their people. Um, it was a perfect time in prophecy. God had specified when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem um, on that donkey. And so he was born at the perfect time in prophecy to fulfill um, that time frame. Uh, it was the perfect time in humanity because as the Roman Empire began to decay um, and, and religion began to take a back seat, those people who were searching for something transcendent, something that went beyond um, the temporal things, um, they were looking for, the Jewish people especially, many of them were looking for the Messiah. God had been silent for 400 years, no speaking prophet um, in the nation of Israel. And so it was the perfect time people were waiting, expecting, looking for, and, um, and then, you know, everything about our lives individually. We, we, you, you, we don't just have to say that, that everything happened like God wanted it to on this planet. Everything happens like God wants it to in our lives, too. Your birth was by God's timing. Your life is by God's timing. Um, your death will be by God's timing. And your day of salvation is by God's, coming, uh, by God's timing. You don't come when you want to come. You come when he calls you to come. So it's all about God's um, timing. God designated all of our times. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, um, he said that today, if you will hear his voice, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart, today is the day of salvation. Um, so I want to consider a little bit more of this passage this morning. At just the right time, God sent forth his son. Now there's a whole lot of theology in, in, in that phrase and in what follows that phrase. A whole lot of theology. I don't know how you study your Bible. I, I can tell you that I go different routes sometimes. I don't have a specific, um, I don't, you know, I can't, if somebody asked me how I study, I said, you just have to sit and watch me for about four weeks because it it, sometimes it comes together differently. But as I began to look at this phrase, God put that in the fullness of time phrase on my mind a couple of weeks ago, and I just began to meditate on that and think about it and kept going back to this passage. And the more I read this passage, the more I thought, this thing says a lot more to me than I ever thought it said to me. And so here's a good way for you to study your Bible. Uh, every time you see that punctuation in there, every time you see a phrase that's given, take those phrases and write them down. Just write them down on a sheet of paper. And, um, and outside of that phrase, give it some thought. You don't have to come up with, with a comprehension right away. Sometimes we just need to meditate and chew on some things. Write that individual phrase down and think about what's being said there. Well, I did that last week at the beginning of the week. Just wrote each one of these phrases down and began to consider what God was trying to say to us through the Apostle Paul in this passage. And, and I found that there's a whole lot of theology here that I never realized was here. It's backed up by the weight of Scripture and given to us in a very succinct, um, simple form here uh, in that one simple statement and, and in the following explanations. And before we dive into it, let me just say this. 
what, what you're about to read, I believe, is essential theology. What we're about to discover is essential theology. And what I mean by that is you cannot, you cannot reject this theology and still be saved. Um, this is essential theology. Now, we can talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We can talk about tongues. We can talk about once saved, always saved. We can talk about when Jesus is coming before the tribulation, after the tribulation. I don't think any of that stuff is essential theology. I think we can disagree about those things, but I don't believe you can disagree about any of these things and still call yourself a Christian. Um, this is, these are essential theological truths um, that we're going to unpack this morning, uh, and our salvation, I think, hinges on believing these specifics. And, and, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on, on any of them. But the fact that this phrase begins with, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth. And just <laughs> unpack that for just a second. Um, and, and honestly, this alliterated pretty easily after I wrote down what I thought each one of these phrases was trying to point us to. And so the alliteration came pretty easy. This is God's plan. This is a sovereign prerogative that only God has, that God has um, completely and fully accomplished by his own plan and by his own design. Um, everything about Jesus' coming was planned. The Bible says that, that, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So everything about the coming, everything about the advent of Christ was by God's sovereign design. It was his prerogative. Uh, everything about this, um, the, the who that was coming, um, the, the, the what, the why, the when, the where, the how, all of that is, is covered in the Scripture. You can go back to the Old Testament prophecies, and God forecast all of this for us. He prophesied. He foretold all of it, um, even to the point of um, Jesus coming from Nazareth, being born in Bethlehem, and having to take a flight into Egypt because of Herod's wrath. All of that's in the Old Testament hidden in the prophetic record there. Everything about the life of Jesus, everything about when he came, where he came, why he came, how he came, the virgin birth, it's all there. The blueprints were laid out in the Old Testament, uh, and Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies um, to the very letter. So um, a, a sovereign, the sovereign prerogative is that as the, as the creator and the governor and the sustainer of this universe, um, it was and is, and I want you to hear me because I think this is important because this is talking about the sovereignty of God and the sovereign will of God. Um, and you, God has always been in control, and it is his exclusive right and privilege to not only establish his plan but to execute that plan when he wants to and how he wants to. And he laid all that out in the Old Testament for us to uncover and unpack so that it, all of it pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know any other way, I don't know any better way to say it, but that he's always been in control. And I know sometimes we look at this planet and think things are out of control. Um, the planet may be out of control, but the creator of it has never been out of control. Um, he, 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 he knows it all. He saw it all. Uh, he's prepared for it all. Um, he's not up there waiting for us to make a decision and then him countering that decision. Um, he's known from the foundation of the world. I was thinking this week just how um, he told Abraham everything that we've been studying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he told Abraham what he was going to inherit, all the land that he was going to inherit. Um, he told Abraham about the promise of a son at 75. That promise didn't materialize till he was 100. Um, and then God said, I'm, you're going to inherit all this land, but it's going to be 400 years before you actually occupy it. Abraham was long dead before they occupied the land. And part of what he said in their occupation was, you can't occupy it until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. 
Same word is used there in the fullness of time. I know what the Amorites are going to do. I know what's going, what, what, it, what it's going to take for them to reach that place where there's no redemption available for them. And when the, when the iniquity of the Amorites is full, then I'm going to let you go in and inhabit and possess that land. So God's done every, all of this has been intentional. All of this, he's never been out of control. Um, he's the architect of it. He's the master builder of it. He's the final inspector of it. And he's the owner of it all. Um, it is by his sovereign prerogative that God um, chose this way at this time um, in this manner. It, and, and this boggles my mind, one of those truths that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Um, even though God is entirely self-existent and self-sufficient, that means he's sovereign in everything. He, he does not need us for anything, but he invites us into it. Um, I don't know how often you think about this, but if God spoke this world into existence like I believe he did, and if he created man for the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life like I believe he did, then you understand that God could have created this over and over and over until somebody got it right, but he didn't. I mean, it, was, it would have been just as easy for God to say after Adam and Eve's creation, you sin, now let me, let, me just, let me just wipe the slate clean and we'll do this again. Let me wipe the slate clean and we'll do this again. And God could have done that very easily. Um, I don't think he rested on seventh day because he was exhausted. I think he rested on seventh day to give us uh, an example that we ought to follow because he knows how he created us. Um, a day to recenter ourselves on him. But listen, God didn't start over. He set the plan in place before he ever breathed life into this creation. And, and in his sovereign will, in his sovereign control, um, he, he designed a plan. Um, he built the plan. Um, he's the final inspector of the plan and, and, and the owner of it all. Um, but at the end of the day, he invites us to participate in it. He invites us to come into agreement with the plan and to participate in it. And that's what we do as Christians. Um, when we step into God's plan and God's purpose and God's will for our life, we join him in his redemptive plan for humanity in that we become his witnesses, his representatives, bringing him glory, pointing the world to him. I think uh, you, I, you, you can look at the scripture and the Bible says God's, God has revealed himself in creation. He's, re, he's revealed himself in the human conscience. He's revealed himself in Christ. Um, and he is revealing himself in and through every person who makes Christ Savior and Lord of their life. That's all part of that sovereign prerogative, that sovereign plan um, to redeem humanity from the curse of sin. The second thing that I see in this passage of Scripture um, is the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the, the Son's preexistence. Um, and and I, we need to understand these are essential doctrines. There are people who have a hard time wrapping their mind around this, people that don't believe in the Trinitarian nature of God, people that don't believe that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, all together, it is the three in one. It's not three gods. Um, it is one God in three persons. And I, there's no way for us to explain that in a way that we can wrap our mind around that either. Um, but for the Bible to say, God sent forth his son. You cannot send forth something that is non-existent. Um, God sent forth his son speaks to us of the fact that the son was already with the father and he sent him forth into the earth. So there's some deity in this, 
when God called him his son, and then later, which we're going to unpack in a few minutes, he made him of a woman, which speaks of his humanity. So you've got the whole God-man concept here, um, that the Son of God became a man and was made of a woman. Um, just as simply as I can put it, Bethlehem was not the beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I spent a lot of time last weekend, some this morning, talking about the eternal nature of God. But when you talk about the eternal nature of God, you're talking about the eternal nature of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. They've existed together. They are, co- they are co-equal and co-eternal. They, none ever existed without the other. Um, Jesus has always been. He did not have his beginning in Bethlehem. He was born as a man in Bethlehem, but he did not have his beginning as God then. And, and there's a, there's a, this is his eternal glory. This is who he was. Jesus said over and over, I, I just came to do the Father's will. He sent me, and I want you to know that he sent me. And um, in John chapter 17, verse 5, in, in, in this high priestly prayer, um, before he went to the cross, um, in the first part of the prayer, he's praying for what he's about to experience. In the second part of the prayer, he's praying for the disciples that he was leaving behind. In the third part of the prayer, he's praying for those that believe on the word of the disciples, which is us. But he's focusing on himself now as he's about to go to the cross. And this is what Jesus says. Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee when? Before the world was. So Jesus is, is in that prayer, speaking in that prayer, saying, Lord, I want, I want, to, I want the, to have the glory again that I had with you before this world was ever created. Um, so Jesus is testifying of his own preexistence. He's testifying of his own eternal glory. He's testifying that he has existed with the Father from eternity past and will exist with the Father until eternity future. John chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 3, and I think John is just mirror, he's given us a, a mirror image of Genesis chapter 1, but he's focusing this on, on the creator of everything in, in Genesis 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Who's the Word? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, all things were made by Him. Were made by who? But were made by the Word. They were made by Christ and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. So this is the eternal glory of Christ. Before he became a baby in a Bethlehem manger, um, he was the God of glory. He ruled and reigned uh, over the cosmos. He created the cosmos along with God the Father uh, and God the Spirit. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, one of those Christmas prophecies that we um, hear and read every year, um, says, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, um, which is Bethlehem of Judah. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. And listen to that last phrase. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And so there's this prophecy of Jesus about where he would be born um, in, in Bethlehem. Out of, out of Bethlehem will the ruler come. Um, and, and that, whole, that whole concept of Bethlehem has to do with the prophecy that was made about a kingly line descending from David that would rule and reign forever. That's, that's Jesus. Uh, he was a descendant of the tribe of, uh, of the lineage of David um, from the tribe of Judah. But he said his goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. Um, I don't have time to go and pack any of them, but there are several times in the Old Testament where you will find men having an encounter um, with 
the King James Version calls him the angel of the Lord. Um, if you look throughout scriptures, you'll never find an angel receiving worship of men. All the angels of heaven, you look at in, in, in the book of Revelation, every time John tried to fall prostrate before an angel, the angel said, get up, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. Um, but in the Old Testament, you'll find several places where... Um, I actually believe Melchizedek was also one, but that's another story for another day. But the angel of the Lord appeared to men, um, and, and those men bowed their faces down and worshipped him. In fact, sometimes the angel demanded that they take their shoes off of their feet because they were walking on holy ground. So I believe that was a theophany. That was a, that was a, um, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have a flesh and blood body, but he had the appearance of a man. And he made these appearances in the Old Testament. So that passage in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says, His goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. So every time God has ever appeared in human form um, to mankind, it has been in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Bible says of God, He's a spirit. Um, no man's seen God any, uh, at any time, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has revealed him. So anytime God has ever shown himself um, in the appearance of a man uh, in human form to humanity, it has been the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the Word was made flesh in his incarnation, and that was the same Word that spoke this entire cosmos into existence. So you've got that sovereign prerogative. This is all God's plan. In his time, he did it when, where, how, why. Everything about it was God's plan. Um, the, when he sent forth his son, that speaks of that eternal glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began, the son's preexistence. The next phrase is that he was made of a woman. Let's unpack, let's unpack that a little bit. An essential doctrine of the church is the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, which speaks the succession of prophecy. The, f the first promise that was ever made for a Savior to humanity, even, even though the Bible says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means he was in the blueprints, before man was ever formed, before man ever fell into sin, the Son of God was already in the blueprints to be the Savior of man. But the first prophecy that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Savior that would come to man, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and it's a very, um, it's, it's not a, it wasn't an easy prophecy for them to wrap their mind around then, and, and, and it's a little easier for us because we, get the, we have the privilege of looking back instead of looking ahead. Um, but it, it talks about the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between thee, that's talking about the servant or, uh, serpent or Satan, but I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so that's the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. That, that's where the scarlet thread of redemption begins. Now you can go back to the lamb that God killed to clothe Adam and Eve and say there's the first picture. And it is. That is the first picture. That, that, that God, um, the first death that ever occurred was due to the fall of man when the animal died to clothe Adam and Eve. That was a picture of the sacrificial lamb of God. But the first prophecy, the first prophetic utterance of Scripture that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So this is the success of that prophecy in that, this G, that Jesus 
um, though he pre-existed with the Father and had eternal glory, um, that he would be made of a woman. Um, made of a woman is the fulfillment of that first messianic prophecy um, that Jesus would be of the seed of the woman. I, we could spend a long time right here, but I'm not. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, another one of those Christmas verses, says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary, um, when she got the announcement from the angel that she would, that she would have a child and, and the, the, the prophecies that surrounded this child um, were that he would be the savior of the world. And Mary had this question for the angel, I believe it was in verse 34. She said, how, how is this going to be? How, how can this happen? Because I don't know, I've not known a man. I've not... Um, at this point, and her and Joseph were betrothed, but they were not. Um, they were not married. They had not consummated the marriage. And Mary said, "I can't bear a child um, when I've not had a sexual relationship with a man." And so, this is the angel explaining to her um, how this is going to happen. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the High shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So this is the incarnation of God. This is um, that, that came by way of a virgin birth. That, and, and in fact, the Bible says that Mary and Joseph never had a sexual relationship until after Jesus was born. He, went, he married her um, as a pregnant teenager, um, but they had no sexual relationship until after the Savior was born. Um, it became very clear to her that this was the fulfillment of God's prophecy and that, that it was only something that God could do, but that God was going to do it according to his will, according to his time, exactly how he said he would do it. So this is the, this is the incarnation, the, uh, the succession of the prophecy from Genesis chapter 3 through Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 to the place where this babe, and I, again, you can't wrap your mind around this, but that, but that the creator of the cosmos... By him, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. The creator of it all entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary to be born in a flesh and blood body. Altogether God, but at the same time, um, altogether man. Why the virgin birth? I think what the scripture points us to in the virgin birth is that um, and, and that whole idea of the seed of the woman is far into Scripture. When, when the Bible starts giving genealogical list, it gives the Father's name. And that the Father begot the Son, and that that Son begot another Son. And so the seed of the woman stands out in Scripture because it's not, the, the reference is not often there for the wife's role in the caring of the child. It's always referred to as the seed of the man. But in this, it was the seed of the woman. And if you look in the, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans, it talks about how um, when Adam sinned, the sinful nature was handed down because God gave Adam the authority that he had to exercise dominion, and Adam failed, and the weight of sin was never placed on Eve's shoulders. In fact, it says that she was deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing. So it was Adam's rebellion that brought the curse of sin. And it was Adam's rebellion that brought the nature of sin to every man. David said, we were all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. That the, 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 the sinful nature, according to Scripture, has been handed down um, through men. Um, that sinful nature has come down through the seed of the man. But Jesus bypassed that 
inheritance of the sinful nature and was born of a virgin. Um, so, so he broke the cycle. Jesus broke the cycle of the sinful nature um, by being born of a virgin. The subjection to the precepts. He was made of a woman. He was made under the law. What does it mean to be made under the law? It means that Jesus was subject to the law. It means that he had to keep the law. It means that he had to walk underneath the bondage, the burden of the law that he gave. Where did the law come from? The law came from um, that interaction that, that, that God had. In fact, there, was, there were laws in man's heart before that, but the law written on tablets of stone um, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, and and any time you involve any part of the Godhead, you involve all parts of the Godhead. So you could say you can literally say, <laughs> the law that Jesus gave to man to live under, he himself um, was subject to. He put himself in subjection to the precepts that he placed upon mankind. Now the purpose of the law, I think, was twofold. The purpose of the law was a revelation of God's holiness. It reveals to us the nature and character of God, so it is a revelation of God himself. The second part of it is so that, so that the law could point out our transgressions so that we would know that we were guilty of violating the holy standards, the, pre, the principles, the precepts um, that God handed down. But Jesus submitted himself to that. Um, he, he was subject to the law that he gave. Now here's what this, this is the, um, and I didn't put these out there, but if you want to write them down, um, the sovereign will of God is first, the eternal glory of the Son the, in the virgin birth. Um, the, the eternal glory is second. The, the um, maid of the woman is the virgin birth, the bypassing of the sin nature. Um, but, but this fourth one is about the sinless life. Um, Jesus did not come and make up his own list of rules for him to follow that nobody else had to follow. Um, Jesus came and subjected himself to the law that he handed man. And live that law out in perfection. Um, he lived a sinless life. He lived. He he was a uh, he was the law of God on two feet. Um, he was the law of God in a living, breathing, flesh and blood man. He walked it out in front of us. Um, he was holy when he gave the law, and he was holy when he subjected himself to um, his own law. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill. I've come not to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill the words of the prophets. Everything that they were writing about, they were writing about me and about my advent. And, and what the law revealed to you was your sinfulness. And what the law revealed to you was my holiness, and I didn't come to destroy it. I didn't come to take it apart. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to live it out. I came to be um, the flesh and blood law for you to see the righteousness of God wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says that the, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. Um, and so the, the holiness, the righteousness of God... Um, was revealed in his subjection to the law that he gave. All of the fullness of the Godhead is revealed to us in Christ um, in bodily form. So, Jesus clarified some misinterpretations of the law. There were some things that man had attached to the law 
that God did not intend for man to attach to the law. And that's what his, that's what his interactions with the Pharisees were all about. In fact, there's, there's, there's some of that going on even in the book of Galatians. Um, but when Jesus was, was in conflict with the Pharisees, it was because they had attached things to the law of God that the law of God never intended to be attached to it. And so when you say that Jesus, you know, the, the Pharisees said you couldn't take but so many steps on the Sabbath day. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, um, they accused him of violating the law of the Sabbath rest. Jesus said, you're attaching stuff to the law that was never intended to be attached to the law. When they were criticizing Jesus for not washing his hands before he ate, they had attached something to the law that God never intended. Um, and, and he rebuked them for that and said, you, can't, you don't defile yourself by what goes into your body. You defile yourself by what comes out of your body. And so all of that was Jesus clarifying misinterpretations of the law. It was in no way Jesus... Um, taking away the law. It was in no way denigrating the law. It was Jesus clearing up those, um, those, those misconceptions about the law of God. So I said all that to say this. When, when it comes down to what God, when it comes down to God's holiness, to God's righteousness, and to God's expectations for mankind, um, for us to be holy and righteous, Jesus lived a sinless life. He, he, he never broke the law in his thought processes. He never broke the law in the words that he spoke. He never broke the law in the deeds that he did. And you can go so far as to say he never broke the law um, by letter or by spirit. <laughs> we studied on, on Wednesday nights the Sermon on the Mount. And the Bible says the, a man that looks upon a woman, he said, you've heard thou shalt not commit adultery. I say unto you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery already. Jesus fulfilled the law and never sinned even in his thought processes. Um, he never hated anybody. Um, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, if he, he that hates his brother hath committed murder in his heart already. So Jesus is telling them, um, not just the letter of the law, not just what the letter of the law says, but what the spirit of the law is. And Jesus didn't violate either the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, not in word, not in thought, not in deed. He was the sinless, he was the sinless son of the one true and living God. And the last thing is this. There's a lot of theology here, and you may be bored with it, but I was excited to. These are essential. When, you, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, um, these are some of the truths that, need to, that at some point need to come out in the conversations that you have. Um, because this, all these things are what qualifies Jesus to do what he did. All of these things are what makes Jesus who he is, and it qualifies him to do for us what he did, which is the last point which he gave us in this passage of Scripture. When the fullness of time was come, this is God's sovereign will, God's sovereign design, God's sovereign purpose, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, and here's the purpose, to redeem them that were under the law. So, so this is Jesus' submission to God's purpose. He was sent to now, all those other things qualify who he was. He was sent to redeem. He was sent 
to redeem. Who? Those that were under the law. Who's that? All of us. Everybody. When the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, that's what we all deserve. Not one person has ever kept the law of God to the letter except the Lord Jesus Christ. No man has ever lived in sinless perfection. Every man has disqualified himself from being in the presence of God. So what did God send forth his son to do to redeem us? From the penalty of the law and for the power of the law that the law exercised over us to condemn us, um, um, to, to, to shame us, to guilt us, to condemn us, um, to separate us from God. Jesus came to submit himself to that divine purpose to redeem them that were under the law. So this is the whole business of a sacrificial um, substitute. A sacrificial substitute. I don't think we can see this as clearly as they saw it in, in the days of the Old Testament. But the principle is still there. Um, if you tried to apply it in today's, in a courtroom setting today, it would be somebody that was absolutely, completely, unequivocally, unarguably guilty who stood before a judge and the judge sentenced him to die and then the judge turned right around and said but I'm going to pay the price for your sin I didn't commit the sin so I can stand in your place now we don't see that in principle today like they saw it in the Old Testament um, when an animal was slain in the Old Testament the priest laid his hands upon the throat of that animal and um, and, and slit his throat and laid the sins of the people uh, under the covering of that animal shed blood. And, um, and, and, and even men began to take that for granted. Even men, and I believe the temple was a beautiful, ugly place. Um, with all of this ornateness, which represented the holiness of God, the beauty of God, um, th there was also the slaughter of animals that took place every day and the stench of burning flesh. Um, it was there every day, every day, every day. But men began to take, men began to even mock that side of God's um, law. In that, um, they took it for granted. So submission to the purpose to redeem them from the penalty of sin, from the bondage of the law. Jesus said in Mark ten forty five, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And in that last phrase, and to give his life a ransom a rescue, a redemption, a substitution, a sacrifice for many. And so Jesus came to die. And all that other is important. I don't, want to, I don't, I don't disregard any of that. Um, in fact, all of that stuff was, was essential for him to be able to do what he did on the cross. But what he came to do was to die. What he came to do was to satisfy the holy wrath of God and the love of God for sinners. If you want to know how holy God is, then you look at the cross. If you want to know how loving God is, then you look at the cross. Um, the cross represents our relationship with God um, and, and the price that was paid to reconcile us um, to God. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also has suffered, once suffered for sins. One time he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that's the substitutionary aspect that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. I quote this verse all the time. You ought to commit it to memory if you hadn't. Um, for in him, that is in Christ, 
for he hath made him. For God hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's an imputed righteousness that we receive because we put our faith um, in the sacrifice, the sinless substitutionary sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace through faith we're saved. By grace through faith in what Christ did on the cross we're saved. So look at those truths one more time. These are essential. This is God's plan. You, we, we have no other alternatives. This is the plan and the purpose that God put in place before the foundation of the world. He brought it all to pass exactly when, where, how, why he did. It was all him. Um, Jesus was there with him. He shared the eternal glory of God. Um, Philippians provides a beautiful picture of how he just set all that aside and came and took upon himself the form of a servant. Um, he, he, he was born without a sinful nature. He came by way of a virgin's womb. He subjected himself to the law of God and fleshed that out perfectly and then submitted himself as the atonement, as the sacrificial substitute for all of man's sins. So, so the question is if you believe that. And I would say to you again, and I believe this with all of my heart, you have to believe those truths. They're essential. You can't bypass any of them. You can't work yourself around any of them. Um, and, and when you understand those truths, and I, I would encourage you to meditate on them things this week. Just uh, No better time of the year than to focus on the, on, the, on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ than at Christmas time. We, we focus on it every, all the time here, but Christmas time, the advent, the coming, what, what everything's centered around and what everything will center around because he's coming again um, to, to judge the world. That's what the Bible says. Now, he came this time to redeem. He's coming the next time to judge the world. But consider those things. And, and honestly, those are the truths that ought to bow your heart in humble repentance. Those are the truths that ought to, that ought to put you right squarely at the feet of Jesus um, to confess your sins and to make him the Lord of your life by faith in all that he's done um if you know you if you know that you're a sinner and you understand that the penalty of sin is separation from god but it is eternal death which is eternal separation from god if you know that you're a sinner and you understand the penalty of sin then you have to understand that there is no way for you or me or anyone to save themselves this is the work of God done only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't, bypass, you can't bypass God's plan and be saved. You can't. You got to come by way of God's plan, God's purpose, God's only begotten Son. Let me close with these two scriptures. Kim, you can, you can come on. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The verse that precedes this one says, It's the will of God for all men to be saved. He wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and this is that truth. There is one God, and there is one mediator who stands between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. It's, Christianity is a very exclusive religion. 
There are not many ways to God. There are not many gods. There's one God. And there's one way to him. The only man that stands as the mediator between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There ain't, there's not another way. And so if you know that you're a sinner and you know this is the only way, why wait? Why put it off? Why not now? Um, I heard Bobby Jackson preach a sermon one time, an evangelistic message, and um, he said that at a revival meeting one night that, that he had a fellow came up to him afterwards and said, I know that everything that you said is the truth. And I know that, that I need to... Um, I need to surrender my life to Christ. But he said, I'm just not ready yet. I'm just not ready yet. And, and, and I, don't, I don't understand. I mean, I know I, I, I fought the conviction for a long time. But there's no other way. This is the only way. And, and, and everything that, that, that he, God takes away from us, he gives us something better in its place. And so there is no other way. And there is no better time than now. But the Bible says over and over that today is the day of salvation. We don't know if we have another one. Um, today is the day. Let's stand. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's um, incredible how often I've read through this passage of Scripture and considered the Scripture and never saw all of these fundamental, foundational, essential doctrinal truths but they're there for us to consider they're there for us not just to consider but to comprehend and believe um, I pray God if there's one here this, this day that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their only Savior and their only Lord uh, that today would be their day of salvation Lord help us as Christians to spend some time meditating in these doctrines. And may it make us more grateful. May it draw us closer to Him, closer to, to His purpose for our lives to be part of this plan of salvation, to be witnesses, to be ambassadors for Him. I um, pray that you'd have your will and your way in this time of invitation. And whatever you do, God will give you glory and praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So long.